Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your ducks, pop a squat and let's get into it. I'm recording my audio, but the listeners didn't know what we were talking about because it's a secret. We do love sharing <laughs> secrets on this uh, podcast. We do. We really do. It's our chance to catch up. Yeah. Hi, Kate. Hi, Dom. <laughs> Fancy seeing you here. I know. I was just in the area, in the neighborhood, walking down a dark in. alley. And oh, good. Boom. <laughs> Here you are, because <laughs> I would normally hang out in a dark alley. So yeah, I'm well, glad we bumped into each other. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got people behind me having a really loud fucking conversation. Oh, so classic. is it about work? Because boring. It's five thirty. Go home. It's the finance team. Like really? Oh, guys, <laughs> come on. One plus one is two. Give it up. <laughs> so if you can hear people in the background, I'm sorry, folks, but hopefully they leave soon. Nah, I can't hear anyone. We're we're sweet. <laughs> I mean, just the voices in my head, but that's <laughs> funny. You should mention that, Kate. <gasps> what? <laughs> no, my story isn't quite about voices in your head, but I am. I'm really going there this week, and I I have to give a full blown disclaimer warning to anyone that listens to this episode. We are exploring some pretty heavy, dark, you know, recesses Content. of the human Perfect. psyche. Yes, let's go. <laughs> Do you want to? Maybe yeah, we're, I, we're actually second guessing. Thanks for joining us, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs> that's it, actually. The episode's over. <laughs> Not really. But look, um, if you've clicked on this episode, you can see what the title is. We are going to be doing, um, following on from my previous theme where I love telling folks about the true stories that have inspired some of horror genre films of Kate and I's yesteryears. Mm-hmm. You know, because we're the oldie. <laughs> <laughs> Back in prohibition times. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're ripping our brows off. And <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> but um, so obviously this week's episode is all about the OG Candyman. Ooh, the Candyman can. Yes, or also known as the Pied Piper, but... This story um, has inspired quite a lot of film. Willy Wonka. And, yeah, actually. <laughs> oh, really? You're not far off. Um, oh. But everyone probably has heard of or knows of the, the, the original Candyman film, um, which is grounded in a lot of cultural, historical fact and, and, and urban legends and... and um, sort of what was happening in a certain time in the in the states and is definitely about African American culture and and things like that that is not actually a true true story but 
if you were to look up where at least the term Candyman came from or what serial killer out there most connects to Candyman, this is the one. So Okay. Can I give you, like, I just need to say, I have no idea about this story. <sighs> I genuinely don't. And I... I'm really excited, but I am coming to this episode with fresh ears of a listener who might not know what we're talking about. I genuinely do believe the only candy men that I know are from Willy Wonka and also that creepy one from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty yeah. Face Represent. But that's it. That's the only ones I know. So I am on board for this episode. I want to hear all about it. I know nothing about it. I want to, let's go. Let's do it. Yeah, there's, there's a few stories throughout history that have inspired or are connected to this or have gone under the label of Candyman, but I'm picking this one. I think this one is truest to the film and it's just fucked uppery to the nth degree. So let's just get into it, Kate. Oh, we've got our new merch for this week, though. <laughs> fucked fucked uppery to the nth degree. <laughs> the nth degree. <laughs> But I do just uh, very much a disclaimer warning for folks. This is pretty dark. So anyway. Perfect. Let me introduce you to Dean Arnold Call. Hi, Dean. He was born December 24th, Christmas Eve on ni- in 1939. Now, he was an American serial killer who abducted raped, tortured, and murdered a minimum of 28 teenage boys and young men between 1970 and 1973 in Houston and Pasadena, Texas, my old stomping ground. Okay, so a couple of things jump out at me. You say 1970 to 1973. Mm-hmm. I thought when you said 28 victims, it might have been a longer time span than that. So we're talking three years 28 victims. I'm sure somebody could do the mathematics on that. That is a lot of people in a short period of time. Yes, it is something else. Now, he was also aided by two teenage accomplices, David Owen Brooks and Alma Wayne Henley. The crimes, which became known as the Houston Mass Murders, Upon discovery, it was considered the worst example of serial murder in U.S. history. Wow. Yes. I just did the quick math. That's 9.3333 victims per year. So that's nearly someone every month. Yeah. Wow. Unnecessary. Now, let's get into it. Let's start at the childhood because we all know what that's about. We always need to just, just uncover a little bit of that trauma. Yep. Now, Dean was born in December 1939 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was the first child of Mary Emma Robinson and Arnold Edwin Cole. Now, Cole's father was, a, was very strict with his children, whereas his mother was markedly protective of both of her sons. Their marriage was marred by frequent quarrelling and the couple divorced in 1946, four years after the birth of their younger son, Stanley. Mary subsequently sold the family home and relocated to a trailer home in Memphis, Tennessee, where Arnold had been drafted into the United States Air Force after the divorce. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Now, Dean was a shy, serious child who rarely socialised with other children, but at the same time displayed concern for the well-being of others. 
Okay. It's a good thing to call That's that empathy. out, right? Empathy, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, at the age of seven, he suffered an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever, which was not recognised until doctors found uh, him found that he had a heart murmur in 1950. So yeah. he was quite old. Yeah. As a result of the, of the diagnosis, Dean was ordered to avoid PE at school, which you know, we've all done that. Yeah. I had my period for eight months. Oh God. <laughs> so I could avoid. I didn't really. I was a very active child. I liked PE. Yeah. Now, Dean's parents attempted reconciliation and remarried in 1950 and subsequently moved to Pasadena, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston. Mm. However, the reconciliation was short-lived and in 1953, the couple once again divorced with the mother again retaining custody of her two sons. Now, their divorce was granted on an amicable grounds and both boys maintained regular contact with their father. So, not too out of the ordinary here. Yeah. Bit of illness, bit of, you know, you know, yeah. divorce trauma here and there. Yeah, okay, okay. Now, following the second divorce of the same parents, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, Dean's mother married a travelling clock salesman named Jake West. Was it clock with an L? <laughs> yes. Just confirming. <laughs> Now, the family moved to a small town of Vidor, Texas, where Dean's half-sister, Joyce Janine, was born. Dean's mother and stepfather started a small family candy company, initially operating from the garage of their home. Okay. Creep factor. (laughs) (laughs) Creep factor maximum. Yeah. (laughs) Now, from the earliest days of the business, Dean worked day and night while still attending school. He and his younger brother were responsible for running the candy-making machines and packing the product, which his stepfather sold on his sales route. Mm -hmm. This route often involved West travelling to Houston, where much of the product was sold. From 1954 to 58, Dean attended Vidor High School, where he was regarded as a well-behaved student who achieved satisfactory grades. As had been the case in his childhood, Dean was also considered somewhat of a loner, although he is known to have occasionally dated girls in his teenage years. In high school, Dean's only major interest was the brass band in which he played the trombone. Pretty stock standard so far. Yeah, that's what I'm just sort of processing. I'm like, okay, so pretty decent grades. Like, you know, I'm thinking from my perspective as a teacher, like it's a bit of a coaster. Like it's, you know, someone who doesn't sort of stand out particularly, but enjoys doing some extracurricular, does okay with their studies. Yeah, it's just an interesting backstory. It's not what I was expecting. Yeah, there's no violence. There's no dead animals. There's no arson. There's no mention of bedwetting. There's no Mm. mention of accidents, injury to the head or the brain. You know, locked in a room or A loving mother or abusive parents, you know, pretty stock standard. So anyway, Dean graduated from Vidor High School in the summer of 1958. Shortly thereafter, he and his family moved to the northern outskirts of Houston so that the family candy business could be closer to the city where the majority of their product was sold. Dean's family opened up a new shop, which they named Pecan Prince, in reference to the brand name of the family product. Okay. In 1960, at the request of his mother, Dean moved to Indiana to live with his widowed grandmother. 
During this time, Dean formed a close relationship with a local girl, although he rejected a subsequent marriage proposal she made to him in 1962. Oh. Yeah. Okay. She probably is happy that that did not follow through. Okay. (laughs) Now, Dean lived in Indiana for almost two years, but returned to Houston in 1962 to help with his family's candy business, which by this date had moved to Houston Heights. And he later moved into an apartment of his own above the shop. Now, Dean's mother, for the third time, was divorced and she, uh, in 1963 and opened up a new candy business, which she named Call Candy Company. Call? C-A-L-L? C-O-R-L-L. So their last name, okay. Call. Oh, gotcha, of course. Yeah, Call. Okay. Dean yep. Arnold Call. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the eldest son was appointed vice president of the new family firm with his younger brother Stanley being appointed secretary treasurer. The same year, one of the teenage male employees of Call Candy Company complained to Call's mother that her son had made sexual advances towards him. Now, oh. in response, the mother fired the teenager. Oh. That's not okay. Not okay. Mm, we all know that. Now, Dean was drafted into the United States Army on August 10th, 1964, and assigned to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training. He was then later assigned to Fort Benning, Georgia, to train as a radio repairman before his permanent assignment to Fort Hood, Texas. Okay. According to official military records, Dean's period of service in the Army army was unblemished. He was, however, reportedly reportedly hated military service. He applied for a hardship discharge on the grounds that he was needed in his family's business and the army granted his request and he was given an honourable discharge on June 11th, 1965 after only 10 months of service. Right. So something's going on. Yeah, okay. Now, reportedly, Dean divulged to some of his closest acquaintances after his release from the army that it was during this period of service that he had first realised that he was homosexual and had experienced his first homosexual encounters. Other acquaintances noted subtle changes in Dean's mannerisms when in the company of teenage males after he had completed his service and returned to Houston, which led them to believe he may have been homosexual. Okay. Just so people know, a bit of history, being homosexual at this time in the world was not a cool thing. Mm. (laughs) It was either illegal or God knows what. And And how about the military? Exactly. Mm. I just want to make sure people loudly and clearly know that how difficult it could be to be who you were at that time and the repression that you must put yourself through can actually be really, really, really traumatic and whatever. Yeah. No No excuses for what he is about to do, though. (laughs) No, but I think it is important to note that. And I think that there's, yeah, I mean, there's still work to do. So I think that it's, yeah, definitely worth noting. Now, the Call Candy Company, let's delve into this a little. Okay. Following his honourable discharge from the army, Dean returned to Houston Heights and resumed the position he held as vice president of the Call Candy Company. 
Dean's former stepfather had retained ownership of the family's former candy business, Pecan Prince, following his mother's divorce in 63, and competition between the two firms was fierce. It's fierce, darling. (laughs) As had been the case in his teenage years, Dean increased the number of hours he devoted to the candy business to satisfy an increasing public demand for his family's product. In 1965, Call Candy Company relocated to 22nd Street directly across the street from Helms Elementary School. Mm. Dean was known to give free candy to local children, in particular teenage boys. Yeah. As a result of this behaviour, he earned himself the nicknames The Candyman and The Pied Piper. Okay. Yeah. It's coming together a little bit now. Got you. Now, the company employed a small workforce and he was seen to behave flirtatiously towards several teenage male employees. Dean is known to have installed a pool table at the rear of the candy factory where employees and local youth would congregate. Now he meets David Brooks. Now in nineteen, hi David, 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 David. ew, David. (laughs) In nineteen sixty-seven, Dean befriended twelve-year-old Dean Owen Brooks. Then a bespeckled sixth grade student and one of the many children to whom he gave free candy. I really like the word bespeckled, just oh, as a side note. I'm sorry. What a name. I, oh, bespeckled. A bespeckled I like to youth. Think of, yeah, I like to think I was a bespeckled youth with all my freckles when I was I young. I think you were. Is that yeah. it? It's, is it not speckled? Spe- spectacles? Or bespeckled, like speckles on your face. I would think it's the, spe- the speckles, okay, but it could be you. spectacles. Kate's going to do you some d- research. You do continue. I'll do a quick juge. Okay. Now, Brooks initially became one of Dean's many youthful close companions, regularly socialising with Dean and various teenage boys who congregated at the rear of the candy factory. He also joined Dean on the on regular trips he took to South Texas beaches in the company of various youths and later commented that Dean was the first adult male who did not mock his appearance. Oh. Sidebar. Yep. I've got a bespeckled. Sorry to interrupt you. Please. There is bespeckled mark or cover with a large number of small spots or patches of colour. So it could be bespeckled. Then there's bespectacled, <laughs> just wearing glasses. So I was close, but it's bespeckled. I would think freckly. Do you know what, Kate? Thank oh you for the cor- cor- corrections corner because Uh-oh. it is bespectacled. Bespectacled. But and I both read words. it as bespeckled. bespeckled. There's both. It's both. Oh. So he has freckles and glasses. <laughs> yeah, let's just say he Sorry. did. <laughs> okay, back to the story. Now, whenever Brooks told Dean he needed cash, Dean gave him money and the youth began to view Dean as a father figure. Now, upon Dean's urging, a sexual relationship gradually developed between the two. Mm -hmm. Beginning in 1969, Dean paid Brooks in cash or with gifts to allow him to perform fellatio on the youth. Okay. Not that this needs saying, but regardless of whether... It was consensual or not uh-huh. is irrelevant. This is a youth it's and a youth. done. The there are conversations laws for over. a reason, everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Brooks's parents were divorced. His father lived in Houston and his mother had relocated to Beaumont about 85 miles east of Houston. 
1970, when he was 15, Brooks dropped out of Waltrip High School and moved to Beaumont to live with his mother. Whenever he visited his father in Houston, he also visited Dean, who allowed him to stay at his apartment if he wished to. Yeah. I don't want to judge David's folks too much, mm-hmm. but and it was a different time, but I don't know how I would feel about my teenage son staying at a other adult's older. house yeah. that doesn't have, like, other children to play with or is not about, yeah. Yeah. Do you think, though, like, genuinely, where there was just never the assumption that yeah. men were gay? I think it, it was you know? such a time that a lot of this horrible, these horrible things were not commonplace. There weren't podcasts. Yeah. There wasn't no. the, the term serial killer. I don't know. I don't think yeah. was quite a thing even just yet. So and even from the perception of the parents going, yeah, it's like my young son, like an older guy, like that's great. Like there's no, they would seemingly think that there's no threat there because, you know, we're not far from homosexuality being still illegal. It's, yeah. you know, perhaps there was that, perception of their mates i don't know it doesn't matter about the age they're just two guys like just you know hanging out doing their thing whatever that may be is that kind of a i mean it's quite possible yeah i don't know that's why i don't want to judge too much but in in today's world it just seems so alien to us yeah anyway let's get back to it um by his own later admission, uh, Brooks began regarding Cole's apartment, so Dean's apartment, as his second home. Now, by the time David dropped out of high school, Dean's mother and his half-sister Joyce had moved to Colorado after the failure of her third marriage and the closure of Cole Candy Company in June 1968. Mm-hmm. Although she often talked to her eldest son on the telephone, Dean's mother never saw him again. Okay. Now, following the closure of the candy company, Dean took a job as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company, where he tested electrical relay systems. He worked in this employment until the day of his death. Right. All right, folks. Let's get into it, as I like to say. Can we get into the nuts and bolts, please? Yeah. Between 1970 and 1973, Dean is known to have killed a minimum of 28 victims. 9.33 victims per year. All of his victims were males aged between 13 to 20, the majority of whom were in their mid-teens. Now, most victims were abducted from Houston Heights, which was then a low-income neighbourhood northwest of downtown Houston. With most abductions, he was assisted by one or both of his teenage accomplices, David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. Several victims were friends of one or of both Dean's accomplices. Others were individuals with whom Dean had himself become acquainted prior to their abduction and murder. And two other victims, Billy Balch and Gregory Malay-Winkle, were former employees of the Call Candy Company. Mm. Dean's victims were usually lured into either one of the two vehicles he owned, a Ford EcoLine van, Classic. Classic. Oh, my God. He's the candy man with a Ford Ecoline van. I didn't even rhyme that on purpose, but that is absurd. He may Mm. as well have had, like, criminal. Yeah. Just spray-painted on the side of it. He also drove a Plymouth GTX, and he also owned 
possibly my favourite car ever, a 1969 Chevrolet Corvette. Great car. Now, he purchased that car for David Brooks in early 1971, another Mm. one of his gifts. This enticement was typically an offer of a party or a lift, and the victim would be driven to Dean's house. At Dean's residence, the youths would be plied with alcohol or other drugs until they passed out, tricked into donning handcuffs or simply grabbed by force. They were then stripped naked and tied to either... Sorry, where was I? To either Dean's bed or usually a plywood torture board which has which was regularly hung on a wall. Once manacled, the victims would be sexually assaulted, beaten, tortured, and sometimes after several days killed by strangulation or shooting with a .22 caliber pistol. Their bodies were then tied in plastic sheeting and buried in one of four places. A rented boat shed in southwest Houston a beach on the Bolivar Peninsula, a woodland near Lake Sam Rayburn, where Dean's family owned a lakeside log cabin, or a beach in Jefferson County. Oh, my God. In several instances, Dean forced his victims to either phone or write to their parents with explanations of their absences in an effort to allay the parents' fears for their son's safety. He is also known to have retained keepsakes, usually keys, from his victims. Wow. During the years in which he abducted and murdered his victims, Dean often changed addresses. However, until he moved to Pasadena in the spring of 1973, he always lived in or close to Houston Heights. It's a bit of a summary, but let's get into some of the minutiae. Okay. Now, Dean killed his first known victim, an 18-year-old college freshman named Jeffrey Conan, on September 25th, 1970. Conan vanished while hitchhiking with another student from the University of Texas to his parents' home in Houston. He was dropped off alone at the corner of Westheimer Road on South Voss Road near Upton, area of Houston, and Dean likely offered Conan a lift to his home, which Conan evidently accepted. Now, David Brooks led police to Conan's body on August 10th, 1973. The body was buried at High Island Beach. Forensic scientists subsequently deduced that the youth had died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation and a cloth gag that had been placed in his mouth. The body was found buried beneath a large boulder covered with a layer of lime, wrapped in plastic, naked and bound hand and foot with nylon cords, suggesting he had been violated. Now, about the time of Conan's murder, David Brooks interrupted Dean in the act of sexually assaulting two teenage boys who Dean had strapped to a four-poster bed. Jesus Christ. Dean promised Brooks a car in return for his silence, and Brooks accepted the offer, and Dean later brought him a green Chevrolet Corvette. Can I ask too, so is Dean getting this cash all from the candy business and from his folks and being a, a sparky? Is that where, like... Pretty much, that's it. I assume this is like he's just... Because he seems to have quite a bit of money to just promise all these cars and stuff to David Brooks and, you know, Elmer and these guys who are helping him to, like, do these horrendous things. And it's coming from the candy company and and his folks? Yeah. That's... Oh, fucking hell. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I just needed to clarify. It's all right. Now, Dean later told Brooks that he had killed the two youths and offered him $200, the equivalent of approximately $1,500 uh, in today's money, 
for any boy he could lure to Dean's apartment. Oh. Now, on December 13th, 1970, Brooks lured two 14-year-old Spring Branch youths named James Glass and Danny Yates away from a religious rally held in Houston Heights to Dean's Yorktown apartment. Now, Glass was an acquaintance of Brooks who, at Brooks's behest, had previously visited Dean's address. Both youths were again tied to opposite sides of Dean's torture board and subsequently raped, strangled and buried in a boat shed he had rented on November 17th. An electrical cord with alligator clips attached to each end was buried alongside Yates's body. Six weeks after the double murder of Glass and Yates on January 30th, 71, Brooks and Dean encountered two teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop, walking towards their parents' home. The Waldrop brothers had been driven to a friend's home by their father with plans to discuss forming a bowling league and had begun walking home after learning their friend was not at home. Both boys were enticed into Dean's van and driven to an apartment Dean had rented on Mangum Road where they were raped, strangled and subsequently buried in the boat shed. Don't get in the van. Can I tell you that that is my piece of advice for this podcast for life. Don't get in the van. Kate's tips. Oh, grispolis. It's just not all right. Don't accept candy. Don't get into a van. Can I ask as well, who, here's like a, you know, uh, you just hear me pouring a little wine there. <laughs> um, I can't with this story. Who's worse? Obviously the people enacting things, but the, like the accomplices, I feel like they need to cop more of a, a rap here. Like Brooks, this guy who's selling his soul for a Corvette. Like you are, you are literally killing people for a car. Like I love cars. I'm all about them. No problems would not cross my mind what i just who is the true psycho here it just that just sort of i don't know it just jumps into my mind i'm like how could you knowingly do that i can't remember david is 15 16 17 years old no highly impressionable probably unloved by his parents has fallen in love with this adult yeah your first sexual experience it's it's Again, not making, I no. think, I don't have the answer for it, but it I is, know. that's that, that's why this story is such yeah. an interesting one. It is, it is. I just wanted to, I just had to voice it. Yeah. I've got to voice my feels. Exactly. Amen. Totally natural. Now, between March and May 71, Dean abducted and killed three victims, all of whom lived in Houston Heights and all of whom were buried toward the rear of the rented boat shed. In each of these abductions, Brooks is known to have been a participant. One of these three victims, 15-year-old Randall Harvey, was last seen by his family on the afternoon of March 9th, cycling towards Oak Forest, where he worked part-time as a gas station attendant. Harvey was driven to Dean's Mangum Road apartment, where he was subsequently killed by a single gunshot to the head. The other two victims, 13-year-old David Hilgeist, and 16-year-old Gregory Mallet Winkle were abducted and killed together on the afternoon of May 29th, 1971. As had been the case with parents of other victims of Dean, both sets of parents launched a frantic search for their sons. One of the youths who voluntarily offered to distribute posters the parents had printed offering a monetary reward for information leading to the boys' whereabouts was 15-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley. Mm. a lifelong friend of Hilgeist. 
The youth pinned the reward posters around the heights and attempted to reassure Hiljai's parents that there might be an innocent explanation for the boy's absence. Yeah, but he knows there's not. On August 17th, 1971, Dean and Brooks encountered a 17-year-old acquaintance of Brooks named Reuben Watson. He was walking home from a movie theatre in Houston. Now, Brooks persuaded Haney, Reuben Watson Haney was his name, mm-hmm. Brooks persuaded Haney to attend a party and an address at Dean's that had Dean had moved to on San Felipe Street the previous month. Haney agreed and was taken to Dean's home where he was subsequently strangled and buried in the boat shed. It doesn't end well. No. This is what I'm discovering. It doesn't end well. In September 71, Dean moved to another apartment in the Heights. Brooks later stated he had assisted Dean in the abduction and murder of two youths during the time Dean resided at this address, including one youth who was killed just before Wayne Henley came into the picture. So... Elmer Wayne Hanley had not come into the picture as of yet. Okay, so he's hanging up these posters, but he's not there just yet. Yeah. All right, just confirming that. Because I was like, you can't just walk around and be like, oh, it's the, guys, this is totally innocent. Don't worry about it. I mean, yeah. I was there last night and I actually know what happened to them, but I'm going to hang no. these posters anyway. All right, At the moment, it's just Dean and David. Okay. Elmer gotcha. Wayne Henley was loosely connected to it as being a friend of one of the previous victims and helping out the family. But he wasn't an accomplice yet. Not yet. Now, in his confession, David Brooks stated the youth killed killed immediately prior to Henley's involvement in the murders was abducted from heights and kept alive for approximately four days before his murder. The identity of both of these two victims still remains unknown. So who is this Elmer Wayne Henley? Now, in the winter... I, I mean, I don't know. Were you asking? I don't yeah. know. Okay, just check it. I don't know who it is. Who's Elmer? I don't know. Don't put me on the spot. I didn't study. Now, in the winter of 71, David Brooks introduced Henley, Elmer Wayne Henley, to Dean. Now, Henley likely was lured to Dean's address as an intended victim. However, Dean evidently decided the youth would make a good accomplice and offered him the same fee, $200 for any boy he could lure to his apartment, and informing Henley that he was involved in a white slavery ring operating from Dallas. Henley later stated that for several months, he ignored Dean's offer, although he did maintain an acquaintance with Dean and gradually began to view him as something of a brother-type person in whom he could confide. In early 72, he decided to accept Dean's offer because he and his family were in dire financial circumstances. Henley said the first abduction he participated in occurred during the time Dean resided at Shuler Street, an address he moved to on February 1972. David Brooks later claimed that Henley became involved in the abductions while Dean resided at the address and he had occupied immediately prior to Shuler Street. So there's a bit of confusion about when did Henley actually begin. If Henley's statement is to be believed, the victim was abducted from the Heights in February or early March 72 in the in the statement Henley gave to police following his arrest, the youth stated he and Dean picked up a boy at the corner of 11th and Studward and lured him to Dean's home on the promise of smoking some marijuana with the pair. Hmm. 
At Dean's residence, using a ruse he and Dean had prepared, Henley cuffed his own hands behind his back, freed himself with a key hidden in his back pocket, then duped the youth into donning the handcuffs before observing Dean bind and gag him. Henley then left the youth alone with Dean, believing he was to be sold into the sexual slavery ring. The identity of this first victim for Henley assisted in um, still remains unknown. Mm. A month later, March 24th, Henley, David and Dean encountered an 18-year-old acquaintance of Henley's named Frank Aguirre, leaving a restaurant on Yale Street where the youth worked. Henley called Aguirre over to Dean's van and invited the youth to drink beer and smoke pot. Aguirre agreed and followed the trio to Dean's home in his, in his rambler and inside Dean's house, Aguirre smoked marijuana with the trio before picking up a pair of handcuffs. Dean had left on the side table. In response, Dean pounced on Aguirre, pushed him onto the table and cuffed his hands behind his back. Henley later claimed that he had not known of Dean's true intentions towards Aguirre when he had persuaded his friend to accompany him. But in, in a 20, 2010 interview, he claimed to have attempted to persuade Dean not to assault and kill Aguirre once Dean and Brooks had bound and gagged the youth. However, Dean refused, informing Henley that he had raped, tortured and killed the previous victim and had assisted in it, and he had assisted in abducting and that he intended to do the same with Aguirre. Henley subsequently assisted Dean in and Brooks in Aguirre's burial at High Island Beach. So he went ahead with it. Ugh. I hate this so much. Yep. Now, despite the revelations that Dean was, in reality, killing the boys he and Brooks had assisted in abducting, Henley nonetheless became an active participant in the abductions and murders. A month later, he assisted in another abduction of Mark Scott. He was already, Mark Scott was already well known to both Henley and Brooks. Um, Brooks stated, Henley was especially sadistic. So now we're getting into this person says this. Yeah, okay. Um, Brooks said that Henley was especially sadistic in his participation in the murders committed at Shuler Street. And before Dean vacated the address on June 26, Henley assisted Dean and Brooks in the abduction and murder of two more youths named Billy and Johnny. Now, in Brooks's confession, he stated that both youths were tied to Cole's bed. It's just more of the same. Yeah, just the fucking... It's just not all right. Basically, it's not all right. There's more and more lists of boys Just and the victims and the fucking ugh, atrocities that were committed against them. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense and. Even reading it right now, I almost just can't keep yeah. reading on how many of them there are because we're only about halfway through. Oh, my God. Well, twenty as we were saying at the start of the pod, like 28 victims in three years, that is a significant number of victims. Like yeah. if that's one, you know, we work it out. Like it's one almost every month. Yeah. And I'm certain that there were probably, you know, maybe he took a month off. Maybe he was busy in October. Mm. and chose not to, you know, commit this horrendous crime against some youth that he just happened to spot walking back home one night. It's, yeah, there's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to a particular address, uh, 2020 Lamar Drive. Now, 
No known victims were killed between February 1st and June 4th of 1973. Okay, so there's his break. He D- took that time off. Thank gosh for that because <laughs> that probably saved a lot of lives, to be honest. Well, Dean is known to have suffered from an hydrocele, a hydrocele in early 1973, which may have contributed to this period of inactivity. What's a hydrocele? I actually don't oh my know. God, I to, I'm going to look it up right this second. I what, should have looked it up, but... How do you spell? Hydra, as in it's, water. It, it is an accumulation Seal? of cirrhosis fluids in a body cavity. Oh! It's around the testicle. Thank goodness for that. Like, not as in if people suffer from that, but this particular person, person. that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, swelling of the scrotum. Mm. Almost a bit of serves you right, champ. Yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah, sometimes due to inflammation or injury. Yep. Hopefully someone need him in the fucking balls and, yeah, trying to send a message. Piece so, of shit. Yeah, the last victim up until this date was uh, a 17-year-old boy named Joseph Lyles, and okay. Lyles was known to, to the group in, in the area. Um, so in addition, around the time of Lyle's murder, Henley had temporarily moved away to Mount Pleasant in an apparent effort to distance himself from Dean. These facts may account for his sudden lull in killings. Nonetheless, from June, Dean's rate of killings increased dramatically and both Henley and Brooks later testified to the increase in the level of brutality of the murders committed while Dean resided at Lamar Drive. Henley later compared the acceleration in the frequency of killings and the increase in the brutality exhibited by Dean towards his victims to being like a bloodlust, adding that he and Brooks would instinctively know when Dean was to announce that he needed to do another boy. He would appear restless, smoking cigarettes and making reflex movements. So Dean's obviously just it's escalating and escalating. Yeah. Now, on June 4th, Henley and Dean abducted 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence. The youth was last seen alive by his father on, the 30, on 31st Street. After three days of abuse and torture, Lawrence was strangled before being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. And less than two weeks later, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled and buried at the same location. Ugh. Now on. Gross. On July 6, 1973, Henley began attending classes at the Coaches Driving School in Bel Air, where he became acquainted with 15-year-old Homer Luis Garcia. The following day, Garcia phoned his mother to say he was spending the night with a friend. He was shot and left to bleed to death in Dean's bathtub before he was buried at Lake Sam Rabin. Five days later, another 17-year-old, John Sellers, was bound, shot to death and buried. So this is his thing. He's just like waking up and going, who's my victim going to be today? I'm just going to go and pick someone. Yeah, it's just Jesus. boom, 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 boom. It's just boom. bang, 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 bang. My gosh. We're almost there. In July 1973, after Brooks married his pregnant fiance, Henley temporarily became Dean's sole procurer of victims, assisting in the abduction and murder of three Heights youths between July 19th and July 25th. Like three in six days. Now, I'm going to just skip ahead a bit. On August 3rd, 1973, Dean killed his last 
victim, a 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Staten Dramala. Dramala was abducted by Brooks and, De and Dean while riding his bike in Pasadena and driven to Lamar Drive upon the pretense of collecting empty glass bottles to resell. It's false. Don't do it. Don't get in the van. Don't sell glasses. Don't yeah. collect glasses to sell. I'm just saying. Pretty intense. Mm. Now. What I'm happened to Dean? Let's. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave people on a bit of a cliffhanger. I'm sorry. Right. No, do it. Let's do it. So here is the beginning of the end, folks. I love it. On August 8th, 1973, now Henley, aged 17 at the time, mm -hmm. invited a 19-year-old named Timothy Cordell Curley to attend a party at Dean's Pasadena residence. Now Curley, a casual acquaintance of Dean's, whose was intended to be his next victim, accepted the offer. Now Brooks was not present at that time. The two youths arrived at Dean's house, so Henley and um, uh, Curly, yep. arrived at Dean's house where they sniffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until midnight before leaving the house, promising to return shortly. Henley and Curly then drove back to Houston Heights and Curly parked his vehicle close to Henley's home. The two exited the vehicle and Henley, hearing commotion across the street emanating from the home of his 15-year-old friend, Rhonda Louise Williams walked toward her home. Williams, nursing a sprained ankle, had been beaten by her drunken father that evening and accepted Henley's invitation to join himself and Curly at Dean's home. Williams climbed into the back seat of Curly's Volkswagen and the trio then drove toward Dean's Pasadena's residence. At approximately 3 a.m. on the morning of August 8, 1973, Henley and Curley, accompanied by Williams, returned to Dean's residence. I was furious, so um, Dean, uh, no, I was, uh, this is what Dean said. I was furious that Henley had brought a girl to his house, telling him in private that he had ruined everything. Mm. Henley explained that Williams had argued with her father that evening and did not wish to return home. Dean appeared to calm down and offered the trio beer and marijuana. The three teenagers began drinking and smoking marijuana with Henley and Curly also sniffing paint fumes as Dean watched them very intently. After approximately two hours, Henley, Curly and Williams each passed out. And that, folks, is where I am going to leave this ba, week's ba, ba. episode. And you All will have right. to tune in next week, or not next week, the week after. The week after. To find what actually happens to Dean mm. and what, how all what of this Rhonda? story. She's like the only girl and he's got cross about that because he doesn't like no girls. Yeah, it's interesting to find out how this story all unfolds mm -hmm. because, you know, a lot of this, they'd never seen anything like this before. It just, nothing had ever happened like this before, really. Yeah. And um, it's quite interesting to learn about the dynamics between David, Elmer and Dean. How do you feel about this? Like you lived in 
Texas, in this place. What was it like? What, yeah, I mean, obviously, completely different time. But what was living in Texas like for you? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting story because it and there's other stories similar to it that there's something so sinister happening just down the street or, you know, something sinister happening around the corner and it's just so basic in how it's done and it's there's like a recruitment element. It's almost got almost that cultish vibe. A a cult vibe, exactly. I was going to say the same thing, that sort of cult vibe, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's quite scary to think and living in somewhere like Houston, this suburban sort of sprawl of, Anything could happen. Mm. Like, you know, it's it's pretty pretty horrible. But anyway, Kate, introduction Dominic. to the Candyman. What I do love we think? It. I well, I don't love it, obviously, for the content. But I am here for the story. I want to know what happens. I really hope something terrible happens to Dean. <laughs> But we will see. Um, yeah, next time. That's fascinating. I still can't get over that's so many victims and it's just a like it's a full-time job. And thank gosh for that, yeah, swollen testicles that he had, again, for hopefully from someone kicking him in the balls. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't I, – you and I – well, I especially, I do like true crime and I, li- I like these sorts of stories, but I, I can tell you even stories like this, I don't actually enjoy when it's just victim after victim after yeah. victim after victim. Like, it's just horrendous, but you, you have to pay respect to all the victims and you also, sure. just the scale. At but which... you have to, yeah, you've got to make it clear in terms of the scale. It's like any three act structure. You got to know the beginning in terms of that, you know, trauma slash that growing up, then figure out what the fuck happened. And now I want to know the third act. I want to know what, what went on. I want to know the ending. The what happened on August 8th, 1973. So yeah, all right. Stick around. i tell you what. Do you know what? Next week, I'm going to talk to you about something that can be uh, traumatic in the sense of um, what would it be like to wake up during surgery? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So I would really love, Dom, you have to be there contractually, but... Uh, our listeners, I would love for you to join. You've got no contract. Um, please sign up for our Patreon though. And then you technically have some sort of something where we will give you some bonus content and have a great time, but join us next week. Thank you, Dominic, for telling your story today. I can't wait for the second part to find out what happens to Dean, that motherfucker. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening, Kate. (laughs) Obviously again, contractually obliged. (laughs) But also really enjoyed it. So thank you for sharing that. And I look forward to seeing you next week. All right, folks. See you later. Love you. Bye. Bye. That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit. So do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.